Welcome to She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. My name is Andrea Reimer, and I was elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018. I teach about power and policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm a longtime community activist living in Vancouver, and I will be your host for this podcast, which is brought to you by the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. Welcome to our second to last episode, where we're going to be talking about solutions. I really struggled with doing this episode, not because there aren't solutions out there. In fact, I struggled because there are solutions out there in massive numbers. There have been so many community-driven reports, academic research studies, and government-led consultations and engagements, and then all the recommendations resulting from all of that. And yet the housing challenges for women and gender diverse people continue to grow. I want to ground this episode in something Nathan Louster said in our very first episode. Canada is not actually in a housing crisis. As housing costs rise, those that own housing are actually experiencing a housing windfall. It's those of us that don't own who are most likely to be in a housing crisis because there is a shortage of rental housing and particularly rental housing for those at the lower end of the household income scale. So not every Canadian is in housing crisis. In fact, many Canadians are not. What we've learned over the last five episodes is that the main determinants of whether we are in housing crisis is how much money we make, whether we have factors in our life that make some or many housing units off limits to us for reasons other than cost, and whether or not we have to move quickly because of violence or other dangers in our housing situation. If you have all three of those factors, you are very likely to be in housing crisis, and you are also very likely to be a woman or gender diverse person. If those are the problems, then there are at least two obvious answers for meeting the housing needs of women and gender diverse people. And it is the basic summary of all those reports, stats, and stories. The first answer is build. Build enough safe and affordable housing appropriate for the needs of households led by women and gender diverse people that no woman or gender diverse person ever has to live in the conditions or violence that you've heard in the stories in this podcast series. Prioritize those that have the most barriers to access, including women and gender diverse people who are Indigenous, have children in their care, or are living with a disability. The second obvious answer is to raise incomes. There are many ways to do this, but the simplest and easiest to administer is a guaranteed annual income at a level that would allow the people for whom housing is a crisis to financially access enough of a range of housing that there is something available for them that is safe and that they can afford. If you'd like more information about either of these policy changes, I've included links with this podcast to a few of the most comprehensive reports, as well as links to resource pages that go into more specific aspects. What I am going to focus on with you today are a few solutions that may not be as obvious. The first one is the issue of hidden homelessness, which you may remember featured prominently in our first few episodes. Housing funding and policy in Canada responds to data, and the methods governments use to gather data on who is homeless or in housing crisis tend to ignore the ways in which women and gender diverse people experience housing precarity and homelessness. Consider that not one of the women or gender diverse people that you heard from in these podcast episodes has ever been counted as homeless by Canada's point in time counts. 
Change in the way we look at housing need is already starting to happen, but it needs more support to become commonplace. This is Carolyn Weitzman telling us about the Housing Assessment Resource Tools project that she is currently working on. The Housing Assessment Resource Tools project is um, funded by the CMHC. Uh, and what we're doing is is kind of what the CMHC should be doing, which is coming up with an evidence-based, replicable, um, comparable way to look at housing need across Canada. So um, we use the census. We divide communities by income categories. The income categories are actually based on some work done by the city of Vancouver, I think, when you were there. Um, so we look at very low income households that are earning less than 20% of median income. No household or individual should be earning less than 20%. That's well below the poverty line, but that's where welfare rates are right now. So a lot of people on social assistance and fixed incomes. We look at low income households uh, who are earning 50% of um, median income. That's usually considered the poverty line. And those are mostly households on minimum wage. Again, minimum wage hasn't kept up with uh, inflation. Uh, we look at moderate income households, um, 50 to 80% of uh, median income. That's sort of your young professional key worker, nurse, teacher, uh, etc. Uh, we look at median income households uh, that are, you know, 80 to 120 percent of um, household, uh, the, the area household income, and then higher income households. So we break down core housing need, for instance, by um, those income categories, also by the size of households, also by priority populations, such as um, single mothers, who are the most likely population to be in core housing need. And that gives us a sense of what the maximum housing costs would be in order to um, address core housing need and also homelessness, uh, which is the supposed targets of the national housing strategy, although the programs don't necessarily um, meet those needs. So um, that's one part of what we do. Another part of what we do is look at a strategy, which again, has been used fairly successfully in Vancouver, which is using government land for nonprofit housing. And uh, we also have a property acquisitions tool, which at the moment is waiting for a federal program to match it. There's lots more to read about ways to change how we count housing need and homelessness. I've included some more information at the resource page for this podcast. The second issue is choice. Now, you may think this is an issue of, for lack of a better term, beggars can't be choosers. But the way our housing policy is set up in Canada now, it's the lack of choice that makes women and gender diverse people go begging for housing in the first place. The kind of choices government should be providing are as diverse as the women and gender diverse people are in Canada. So this next section focuses on thinking about policies and processes that support a broader range of choices for women and gender diverse people and their families. One of the simplest policy changes is something we heard about from Christine in episode three. Here's Alina McKay and Victoria Barclay from the Finding Homes for Families study. Yeah, so in terms of um, creating gendered solutions, I think it's really about giving women more choices and autonomy. Um, so we see this in our research on national occupancy standards where there's been sort of this one size fits all policy that's assumed 
to be in the best interests of women and children. Um, and our research really has shown in so many ways that it's such a poor fit for women and children. And all too often, I think this is sort of the right the the way that we create policies. We have very good intentions, um, but the interest groups that these policies actually affect are not consulted. Um, not to mention that it just doesn't work, right? It's creating major barriers to women and children actually accessing housing. Um, all too often um, with national occupancy standards, right? This policy is implemented in a way um, that takes choice away from women. And that's where we really see, um, you know, that's something that we're really recommending is to create more choice for women so that they can say, for example, if a woman is sleeping with a young child and that's something that she chooses and she wants to stay in a one bedroom apartment, like that should be considered if that's right, the choice and that's going to provide better access to housing where she wants to live. Um, because we see, you know, someone, oh, you have a, you're a woman with a child, therefore you need two bedrooms. Well, the, you know, and, and therefore you have to wait another two years to find that two bedroom house, right? Like it just, we're creating these barriers um, based on the ideals of like what a family should look like and how they should use their space um, in ways that really aren't working. So I think gendered solutions really are about um, making sure that that autonomy and control um, is given back to women um, when we're making policies. Yeah, I mean, like Alina said, um, when women are waiting for these so-called suitable units, they're staying in places that are either not suitable, like a transition home, so it's a family in one room, or they're staying in in these homes where they're where they're being abused um, by either their partners or their family members or um, whoever it is. So creating more um, multi-bedroom units for women that is available across the city um, so they can choose where they'd like to live um, as well as uh, choose where they will be the safest from abusers not being able to locate them as well as making sure that guidelines are not applied so strictly and instead are, are flexible um, for women's needs and prioritize um, the safety as well as the inclusivity of their uh, diverse family needs. I asked Alina and Victoria if they have other advice on how to better provide choice for women and gender diverse people so that they don't end up in crisis in the first place. I can just really quickly answer that because I think it's once again, um, you know, bringing to light some of the work that BC Society of Transition Houses have, has been doing, especially around their women centered design toolkit that was just released. Um, so uh, yeah, that that if, if you're interested in housing impacts and solutions that are women-centered, that's a really great place to start. And it explores the importance of the whole housing system when we're considering solutions, not just sort of, you know, um, like we were talking about before with national occupancy standards, um, thinking about this one-size-fits-all policy that just we just know doesn't work. This is a good opportunity to bring in Irene Janichos. Hi, my name is Irene Janichos, and I am the Director of Strategic Investment with the Van City Community Foundation. Van City Community Foundation is affiliated uh, with Van City Credit Union, and we operate primarily in um, the greater Vancouver area and Vancouver Island. Um, but also have a have a connection with Van City Community Investment Bank that operates in the Ontario area and nationally. 
I first heard about the work that Irene was doing through a colleague at Ben City I was connected to through another project. I had mentioned I was doing a podcast that involved women, gender diverse people, their families, and housing. And this colleague said, oh, you have to talk to Irene about this project she's been working on. Irene, as you heard, works for Van City Community Foundation, and together with Van City Credit Union, they've developed an interesting program called the Van City Affordable Housing Accelerator Program and Fund. This is Irene talking about what it is and why they did it. This particular program grew sort of as we identified that our members um, had assets and had buildings that were aging that were underutilized and they wanted to redevelop them and there were no resources available for them to do that. So it was sort of the idea of organizations being asset rich and cash poor. And the grant program really grew out of that. Uh, Organizations asking for support to do feasibility studies and concept plans. Um, and, And then identified that they didn't have enough capital to really move into municipal approvals. Like that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And some of the government funding wasn't available until you had construction financing or you were in construction. And projects are still too risky at that pre-construction phase. So that's how we created the Accelerator Fund, which provides, I used the word patient before, but which provides low cost, 2% interest, flexible, um, no repayments until the organization secures construction financing. So it really is meant to kind of serve as equity that helps a project move from idea to construction. And this is how Irene came to meet the woman at Sir Optimist, a global volunteer organization of women that has a mission to economically empower women and girls through access to education and training. Sir Optimist Uh, society came to us to say like we have an aging building and we want to pursue redevelopment um, so we can create more housing for women and diversify the kind of housing that they can provide and so how that project started is we provided them with a grant uh, and engaged with a consultant to to carry out a visioning so the first step was to for them to sit down as a group and develop their vision and their guiding principles for their redevelopment. And in that, they talk about things like, what do they want to develop? Who do they want to house? Who do they want to work with? What are their goals? What's their vision for when the project is complete? And what does it look like and feel like? And during that visioning session, they identified the concept of building for women built by women with women. And it was really, really um, moving to see them really identify that vision. And the consultants, Carla from Purpose Driven, really um, um, enacted that vision as they move forward with the development process. So I tracked down Carla. My name is Carla Guerrera, and I'm the CEO and founder of a company that's called Purpose Driven Development. I founded Purpose Driven Development in 2016 after about 22 years working in private sector development and in government, delivering uh, mixed use, mixed income projects with different private sector organizations, both in Vancouver and uh, in in Toronto as well. Um, And I founded Purpose Driven Development because I wanted to really focus on 
delivering projects that were delivering on triple bottom line values and triple bottom line impact. I realized that there were all of these groups who had land uh, that were wanting to unlock the value of their land to deliver on social benefit and environmental benefit, but really didn't have the expertise that we held so strongly in the in the private sector development industry. I asked Carla what she thinks the impact of the Seroptimus project has been. Um, so the project is actually starting construction in uh, July this year, which is incredible. Um, and the project is going to be delivering 135 affordable homes for all women. So it's an intergenerational project that we're creating, uh, which is delivering housing for, um, so it's also mixed income, and it's delivering housing for senior women and women-led families and workforce women. So there's three three different levels of affordability built into the project. And since that time, 2017, uh, we have only uh, brought women on the project as consultants. So the architects are all women, the engineers are all women, the surveyors are women, and even the construction company, the general contractor that we're working with has brought uh, women uh, as their leads to lead the, manage the project. And they've also brought women off of other construction sites to assemble this team of women to even deliver the project as, as far as possible through construction. So it's been an incredible experience um, working in this all-women team and really demonstrating and mentoring women through the entire process. You know, all of the entire consultant team, my company included as a development lead, you know, we have all used this project as a way to mentor and build skills and experience of other women within our teams. Uh, so it's quite remarkable to sit around a table of all women who are doing this project, mentoring other women in our respective skills and trade areas, and to be delivering housing for all women to support, you know, elevating women out there um, in a city that is one of the most afford unaffordable cities in the world to live in. So it's been quite remarkable um, overall. And there's been a lot of really wonderful successes and experiences along the way and, and a lot of support for this project. In fact, I, I believe um, it's the only project that we're aware of in North America and possibly globally um, that is delivering housing for all women by an all-women team. It's very unique. This project is super inspiring about what can be achieved when women lead and when organizations that have land come together with progressive financial institutions and developers that have purpose as a main goal and put women at the center. But it doesn't have to be a big project to still have impact and provide the choices that women and gender diverse people need. Let's meet Krista Pilz. My name is uh, Krista Pilz and I'm doing, I'm currently the executive director for Westminster Housing Society. Um, and we're based in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I asked Krista if she can explain the Westminster Housing Society model. 
It began as a community development and renewal uh, program. Um, I think there was it, it was born out of the United Church as well. So that's part of the reason why it's called Westminster Housing. Uh, many of the original board members uh, were are and are still currently members of Westminster United Church in Winnipeg. So um, I think they all just gathered around and were like, what can we do for our neighborhood? What do we want to offer our neighborhood? How can we be of service? And our one of the, the founding members who is still sits on the board uh, of Westminster Housing, he said, let's build, let's build housing. Like let's do something that is concrete, both literally and figuratively, and that is of great service to the people in this community. And so they they developed the Westminster uh, Housing Co-op. That was their first um, development. And then they moved more towards um, looking at the neighborhood as a whole. And at that time in the early 90s, there was a lot of, there's many uh, hundred year old houses and many were dilapidated, abandoned, similar to what we're experiencing still now in Winnipeg. And um, they said, let's take these uh, single family homes and we're going to rehabilitate them into affordable multi-units for very low income individuals in the community and that's what they've done and over the 28 years they you know we now manage 28 of these multi-unit homes it's uh, inclusive of uh, about 103 units we have heard about some pretty big housing problems so i think it's easy to think of big housing solutions and the big organizations needed to mobilize them those solutions are absolutely needed, but I also find it incredible to think about how much different the world would be right now if every faith-based organization made the same commitment in their local community as Westminster Housing Society did 28 years ago. I asked Krista about this. Yeah, and I mean, over, like, even now still, um, we, you know, this organization is proving that stable, safe, quality, affordable housing really does matter to people. And it also really does, it helps people, it helps families, it helps uh, individuals, it helps people sort of all across sort of the vulnerable, uh, low income demographic population people, um, you know, and, and it works and it does help and it is important. And so these things, um, I think that Westminster Housing is unique in that it has chosen uh, specific, um, you know, neighborhood community to work within, and it's committed itself to that. And so now, sort of as we look at our strategic direction moving forward, and the current inflationary costs of building very large scale affordable housing, I think that, you know, it, there's a really a lot to say about staying small scale, staying within the community, really working, um, you know, with people to, to help us determine what, what that should look like. Krista and I end up talking for a while about why it's so hard to get housing built when it's so clear there are people that are in desperate need of affordable and safe housing. Everybody having a house that feels like a home, that feels like a, a, a you know, a, a, you know, where, where somebody can have community permanence and feel like they belong. I think that is, I, I believe that 
that that housing is an exercise in applied ethics and the ethics that we bring to it um, and the values that we bring to it will manifest in how we develop housing. Krista had more to say, but we're going to hear it next week, along with learning about the most powerful tool available to us to create housing solutions that work for women and gender diverse people. It's our final episode. I hope you'll join us. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room and housing for women and gender diverse people. To find out more about the She, They, Us campaign, you can visit the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing webpage, where you'll also find resources from this episode and can add your voice to the army of women and gender diverse people fighting to make room in housing.